This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I was chatting to a mum and her little boy on the train the other day and I accidentally said shit, which I immediately rectified by saying fuck, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I've played Crazy Golf twice since we last spoke. Twice. That's a lot. It is. Is it officially a hobby now? Almost. I'm buying some kit. We did actually we did actually see a woman who was dressed for golf while playing crazy golf. <laughs> and my nephew and my brother and I like giggled the entire way around because it was just ludicrous. Full kit wanker. Yeah. <laughs> At crazy golf. I always see people in spin who are wearing cycling jerseys and you're like, unless you've got a gel in your pocket <laughs> yeah. which you don't need for a forty five minute class, I wanna know why the fuck you're wearing that. I think if you're buying kit to play crazy golf, you should buy a windmill costume. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and seeking inspiration from the mighty Vix Layton, standard issue consumer expert, I'm pleased to say that my Curry's PC World insurance policy has finally been avenged. Hooray. Hooray. Still not shopping there, though. Later on, Scottish musician Carla J. Easton bigs up some women pioneers in pop. I speak to Caroline Criado-Perez about why she's objecting to plans to move the statue of Emmeline Pankhurst from outside Parliament and why you should be too. And I meet Annie Saunders to chat siblings, Antigone and her new show, Our Country. And I'm talking to Lauren Hendry about her Edinburgh Fringe show, Tetra Decathlon, and the joy of being a serious amateur. And I do Disney's Oliver and Company. But first, Boris, Botox and adult babies. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Definitively more popular than a Kevin Spacey film. Are we still allowed to like Seven and The Usual Suspects? I think possibly we're allowed to like those, but his latest film opened in 10 cinemas in America at the weekend, made $126. So like I say, definitively, more people are enjoying us than enjoying Kevin Spacey. I'm quite pleased by that news, on all the levels, to be honest. The National Police Chiefs Council pledged to tackle sexual harassment last week after a survey found huge numbers of staff in civilian roles had been harassed at work. A unison survey of around 1,800 members of staff in roles including community support officers, fingerprint experts and crime scene investigators, which feels like it's weird to describe that as a civilian role, but that is how it's been described, found that as many as 1 in 25 respondents had been pressured into having sex. 1 in 12 had been offered preferential treatment in turn for sexual favours, and 1 in 5 had received sexually explicit emails or texts from colleagues. Chief Constable Julian Williams, the lead for professional ethics at the NPCC, said the behaviour falls short of standards set out in the Code for Ethics, which you kind of hope is the biggest understatement since Jeffrey Dahmer said he'd really messed up. (laughs) 
William said predatory behaviour required the strongest response and also pledged to find effective ways of challenging behaviours like the telling of dirty jokes. And I think it was about one in five people said that they had been told like sexually explicit jokes at work, which he conceded were damaging but might not be malicious. That's what she said, Jules. This week, I was made beyond fucking livid by something that came through my letterbox. It wasn't a dog turd on fire. It wasn't even a UKIP leaflet. No, it came from SPUC, SPUC, which stands for the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, although I'm petitioning to get it changed to Stop the Propaganda, you utter cunts. Do you think they meant it to sound a bit like spunk? Every sperm is sacred, Jen. (laughs) Yep, the brilliant results of Ireland's repeal the 8th referendum and the increasing volume around talks of changing the laws on abortion in Northern Ireland have clearly got the anti-choicers hot under the collar. It came with the usual emotive lies and images favoured by pro-lifers, It also came with a free post address, which I'll certainly be making use of and can only recommend you to the same. Spook are the same utter cunts who just tried to challenge Scotland's law that allows women to take the abortion pill in their own homes. Thankfully, a judge threw out the challenge. Ha! Spook, put that in your pipe and smoke it. And teabag, let's give women in England, Wales and Northern Ireland the same right. However, we can't ever forget that these fuckers and their kin are dangerous. Just this week, a woman in Argentina died from a botched do-it-yourself abortion less than a week after the Argentine Senate rejected a groundbreaking bill that would have legalised abortion up to 14 weeks, a bill that had already passed the lower house in June. According to Argentina's National Ministry of Health, 500,000 illegal abortions are performed in the country each year. It's a huge step backwards and a massive slap in the uterus for women's rights. In a tiny bright spot, albeit one that is woefully overdue, The government has announced that next month it will be setting out its response to the Home Office consultation on anti-abortion clinic protests. What that hopefully means is ruling around buffer zones that stop the harassment of the women accessing healthcare and the medical practitioners providing that healthcare, because abortion is healthcare. Indeed. So what's Boris been up to since we last spoke? I hear you ask, and by ask I mean scream into the sky. Well, the news is he may have to go on diversity training. As a former foreign secretary. Yeah. This comes after the Burka comments which he made, which obviously there's been a lot of conversation about, partly because I don't think he actually means the word Burka. Anyway, I think he's referring to the niqab. But anyway, there is a discussion to be had about freedom of speech and there is a discussion to be had about how all religions essentially subjugate women. But Boris isn't interested in that, so I don't think we should be talking about that either. What Boris is doing here is he's testing how far he can actually go and still come out with the chance of being the Prime Minister, as if everything that he's done today isn't enough for him to not be the Prime Minister I mean, diversity training, like you say, for a former foreign secretary, it's insane. It's like if we were taking the health secretary and you were teaching him, you shouldn't push the cotton bud all the way in to the ear or like telling our transport minister that we drive on the left. I mean, you just kind of expect that he'd already had some training or at least like made to watch those HSBC adverts. You know, the ones that used to say eight is a lucky number in China. You know, fun facts, Boris, about what the rest of the world is doing. And it's the kind of the horse has bolted, isn't it, sending him on diversity training. I mean, it'd be like sending Mr and Mrs Johnson on parenting training. I mean, <laughs> it's done. You fucked up. Do you reckon that's why Jeremy Hunt always looked so vacant? Because he pushed the yeah. combat all the way in. <laughs> no one told him. 
I just wonder what that diversity training is going to be. I did. I did once have to go on a form of yeah, training, not diversity training, um, but I had did fuck up at work and I had to go for a special lesson. And that was when I used to be on a local radio station, and somebody said, "Cunt," at ten a.m. on a Sunday morning, which isn't ideal. And my co-presenter, hi Nick Shelton, and I had to sit in a room and answer questions about what words you can and can't say on the radio. And was it the, like the world's shortest game of hangman? Yeah, and the point is, you know this stuff. Those training things are things that you already know, and you just, like, messed up. But Boris didn't mess up. This was a deliberate move on his part, so what is the point of diversity training? I'm beyond befuddled, but there you go. Who's sending him on the diversity training? Well, apparently that is one of the options that the government might might do. What are the other options? A nothing. Can we That's put another him, option. Don't just we, nothing. Put him back on that zip wire and not let him get <laughs> yeah. rescued. Surely. And make Jeremy Hunt shake a bell near him. Given that <laughs> he's not a minister belt. anymore, they need to send, like, probably a good quarter of Parliament to diversity. I actually chain, think the they? point of them saying this is because it gives the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail a headline, which is like, oh, look how PC it is. He has to go on diversity training. What, as opposed to look at the fucking shitstorm in yeah. government this week? Speaking of shitstorms. <laughs> Proverbial bad penny Nigel Farage was back to his old tricks last week as he announced his return to what some called frontline politics. <laughs> which I suppose would be accurate if he'd A, ever fucking gone away, or B, won any of the seven occasions he's previously stood for election as a member of parliament to the House of Commons. That's right, guys, seven times that man has failed to be elected. As MP, I just need to take umbrage with your use of the phrase "old tricks," Jen, because I don't think he's ever had any other tricks. No, fair enough. Seven times. Writing in well-known perpetrator of rational discourse, The Telegraph, Farage says it was beyond doubt that the political class in Westminster—that's the class he's tried to join on seven unsuccessful occasions, as willed by the people for whom he stood on those seven occasions—do not accept the EU referendum result, which is funny because I thought that's why the whole of the rest of the world was laughing at us, because they actually inexplicably do. He's had enough of their lies, he says. Presumably he wants to know what they're going to do with that extra 350 million quid a week too. Oh no, hang on. (laughs) And so he's back, he says, having joined the Leave Means Leave pressure group, brought to you by the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg, the one who doesn't like abortions, Ian Paisley Jr., the one who doesn't like the gays, or declaring holidays paid for by the Sri Lankan government. And our mate Sir Christopher Chope, the one who doesn't like banning non-consensual photography of women's genitalia. So that is all the good guys. Apparently old Bob Mugabe was busy. Chope. So funny. News just in from the high street as Superdrug launches Botox and dermal fillers in store for people aged 25 and over from just £99. If, like Dunleavy, you're currently furring your brow, you can totally get that sorted out, by the way, if you want. At what the procedures entail, Botox is an injection that relaxes facial muscles, while dermal fillers fill out the wrinkles in the skin and can also be used to plump cheeks and lips. Both are temporary. Both are usually coming at around 150 to 300 quid per session at a dedicated clinic, and both can have pretty severe side effects if not administered correctly. Yeah, even non-surgical cosmetic procedures are considered a medical treatment. So Superdrug's decision has got cosmetic surgeons frowning. At least that's what they've said they're doing. Although, come on now, my mate man used to work in boots of a weekend and I totally trust her to put a needle in my face. Clearly it won't be the Saturday staff wielding the youth injections and I guess it's not really a surprise that Superdrug wants a slice of the non-surgical cosmetic treatments pie given it's worth a staggering £2.75 billion a year. We live in a time of homogenised Instagram face 
now more than ever before. For a lot of people, the daily strive for perfection is real, despite everything about it being fake. Your self-worth's only as good as your last selfie. And now I'm to be reminded that my haggard 41-year-old face simply isn't good enough for these messed up standards of beauty every time I go to buy a paracetamol for the headache I've got from screaming at the sky because the world's on fire. But I could probably afford 99 quid. I am in a feminist pickle. I firmly believe a woman should be able to do whatever the fuck she wants with and to her body and I dislike the idea of any treatments being elitist. But it's full stop wrong that society has deemed natural lines, wrinkles, you know, the signs that we've lived a little or lived a lot, those unique flaws that make us so attractive, something that needs a raising. Because growing old is a privilege. And yet, at the same time, I've grown up in a culture that prizes youth, particularly in women. And so there are certain things I see when I look in a mirror that make me sad, however much I tell myself it's patriarchal bullshit. And if I feel that way as a mostly confident bird in my 40s, how the fuck does a vulnerable teen feel? I'm not mad at Superdrug. I'm just really disappointed. You can get them at my dentist, I noticed. You can get, like, fillers and shit at your dentist. Yeah, dentists are medical professionals. Yeah, I still think that's a bit weird, though. Yeah. The whole industry's weird and sad, I think. Agreed. Mm. I have nothing to add to this because I find that to be largely, like, just nonsense. It just adds to it being pernicious. If it's on the high street, you don't even have to book an appointment. You can just walk in and sort it out there and then. Found yourself wondering what happened to Silly Season? That traditional summer news lull when everybody got obsessed with a story so ridiculous it deserved both never to be spoken of again and to live in infamy. Brexit and Trump have largely killed Silly Season in the traditional media, but good news... Twitter's there to pick up the slack. And last week it was sillier than ever with the emergence of the curious case of the former Wales international and the adult babies. I think I've read that. Mustachio goalkeeper Neville Southall has recently been allowing activists and campaigners to take over his Twitter account, which I think we can all agree is both a very public spirited (laughs) thing to do and a disaster waiting to happen. I need to say from the outset that although everything I'm about to tell you might lead you to think I'm taking the piss out of him. But Southall was shown a level of public support for LGBT issues almost unique among his peers. So, you know, I do think his heart is in the right place, even if his critical thinking is, well, I don't know, all over the place. Case in point, last week, Grace Rogers announced that she would be taking over Southall's Twitter to raise the profile of, quote, littles, hashtag, ABDL matters. To be clear, that's hashtag ABDL matters, not hashtag ABDL lives matter. Because if it was, I'm not sure I'd have been able to read that out without putting on my adult diaper in case I piss myself laughing. It would be the Owen Jones rap battle all over again. Twitter immediately did what it does, with many pointing out that men dressing up as babies and wearing nappies is a fetish. And others stating that, even if it is, you know, enough of the kink-shaming, guys. Mm. Southall himself put up a spirited defence of what he described as a non-sexual therapy before (laughs) deleting a series of tweets and replacing them with just one sentence. The adult baby's takeover is off. Goodbye. (laughs) Which I've singly been unable to read without hearing it in the voice of Anne Robinson. (laughs) So what have we learnt from the adult baby diaper love brouhaha? I mean, really, the clue's in the name, guys. We've learned that the road to true wokeness is strewn with good intentions and, it seems, stressed out businessmen in adult nappy. Where do you buy those? Are they online or in Tesco? In like Maybe they like exclusively wear Terry Terry, cloth. yeah. 
Oh, with the big safety pins. Mm. But I mean, fucking hell, the internet. Who knows? <laughs> Props to Scotland as North Ayrshire Council becomes the first local authority in the UK to provide free sanitary products in all public buildings. Research published by the Women for Independence Group last spring revealed that one in five women has experienced period poverty, which means she struggles to pay for basic sanitary products on a monthly basis. Joe Cullinane, the Scottish Labour leader of the council, estimates the initiative will cost around 40 grand, which sounds like 40 grand well spent. In lieu of any sort of equivalent scheme in your area, please remember to chuck sanitary products into your local food bank. Anybody want a bit of good news? That actually seemed like a bit of good news, mm. but I have another bit of good news if you're interested. I'm always up for some good news, Hannah. Yep. Yes, please. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, the world's greatest comedy actress, no, you shut up, I'm right, <laughs> has returned to work as filming began last week on the seventh and final series of Veep. Production was delayed on HBO's political comedy after JLD announced she was being treated for breast cancer. In a video on her Instagram page, she said... I really appreciate everyone coming back and working it out to come back. Thank you very much. Love you guys. Series 7 will appear on our screens next year, which in the face of such relentless fuckery in the world is a huge win. Welcome back, JLD. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where women get pitted against women and the only winner is social conditioning. And so it's a happy 60th birthday to Madonna, a woman who has flown high in the male-dominated skies of the music industry for decades. A woman who has owned her sexuality and shown other women it's alright to do so. A woman who's a singer, songwriter, actress, businesswoman and the queen of pop. A woman who really should put it away now and act her age. Come on, Madonna. Well, that last bit is according to Good Morning Britain hosts Eamon Holmes and Ranveer Singh. You thought I was going to say Piers Morgan, didn't you? Well, hold your horses, pal. He is, of course, coming up. Hey. Former Big Brother contestant Rebecca Jane joined in with the jibes, saying she felt Madonna was embarrassing and an attention seeker. (laughs) Just in case you didn't hear me the first time, that's former Big Brother housemate Rebecca Jane. Yeah, Madonna's really let us know too much about her life, mate. Sure. Where's that Piers Morgan mention you were promised I hear you cry? Brace yourselves. Rebecca Jane backed up her, let's face it, ageist remarks by citing that Piers Morgan agreed with her, so she must be right. Jesus, imagine if Morgan was a benchmark for anything but being a staggering wang tassel. He's not, by the way. Luckily, Linda Lasardi, a woman about to turn 60 herself, was there to put the record straight. What happened to the sisterhood, she asked? You're supposed to support people. You're not finished just because you've been through the menopause. Yes, Linda! Meanwhile, Holmes fawned over Lasardi, presumably only stopping himself from actually pouring her because he was having a below camera line trouser rummage, as he told her, Years ago, you didn't think you'd be blessed with the figure and the body you have now. The creepy, tautological little shit. Maybe he should act his age rather than that of a sniggering schoolboy. And obviously, Eamon Holmes would know what it's like to age well. I think <laughs> yeah. we can all agree that on that. Hi. So... As I mentioned in the intro, there are currently plans afoot to move the statue of Emmeline Pankhurst from its current position near Parliament to a different position in a private college in London and to put a new statue of Emmeline Pankhurst on Canning Green, a different piece of land further away from the Houses of Parliament. This is a plan being put forward by former Conservative MP Sir Neil Thorne. Now, it sounds a bit bonkers, doesn't it? That's the bad news. The good news is feminist campaigner extraordinaire Caroline Criado Perez has taken up the cause and I managed to grab 
10 minutes on the phone with her earlier to ask her, really, what fresh hell is this? It's just astounding, really. Essentially, you know, when you boil it down to its bare bones, it is an ex-Tory MP who somehow thinks it makes sense to get rid of an original suffragette-funded suffragette located you know they chose to put it right next to the house of commons statue of emmeline pankhurst with his own vanity project tucked away on a traffic island behind parliament square it's just absolutely bizarre like how anyone can think that this is a good idea you know as soon as you tell anyone about it they're just i mean everyone i've spoken to about it has just but there must be more to it than that Because it's so weird. No one believes that it's literally just he's getting rid of this grade two listed original steeped in suffragette history statue so he can put his own one up. It's just mad. Is it just a vanity project? I noticed it's by someone called the Pankhurst Organisation, but they're not linked to the Pankhursts, are they? No, not at all. And actually, from my understanding, Helen Pankhurst isn't pro this idea because she likes the original statue and also feels that, you know, why not put up a statue of someone else? This is the thing that I find so weird is if he wants to put up a statue of another woman, that's brilliant. There are so few statues of women, real life historical women, as opposed to figurative nudes or muses like Euterpe or um, Muse of drama or whatever so there are so few of them it would be great to have a statue of another historical figure and if that's what he wants to do that would be brilliant but he's just got this bee in his bonnet my understanding i know and i know this sounds ridiculous and i can see that you don't believe it but (laughs) it genuinely is just he just wants to move it so he can put his own statue up that's literally it he wants to replace this beautiful historical statue with his own statue for no good reason other than he wants his own statue. It's just baffling. And the timing is even... incredible as well, really. Yeah. Given 2018, I mean, allegedly, it, the it's year of women. It's sort of like, you know, that Onion article come to life about man finally put in charge of struggling feminist movement, <laughs> except I clearly isn't even a feminist because... He doesn't seem to have any concept of, you know, the history of the women's movement and doesn't seem to think that it would be a problem to move the statue from what already is a very prominent location that is very easily accessible, gets footfall of millions to somewhere that no one goes because Canning Green is, and I cannot stress this enough, a traffic island. You can't get to it. And so you have all these people interacting with this statue and people will be having conversations and have been for, you know, the best part of a century about who Emmeline Pankhurst is because they passed this statue. And then she's going to be tucked, you know, round the corner when no one will see her and no one will visit her. The original statue is going to go on to essentially a private college that has a... I mean, the link is so tenuous to women that, I mean, it might as well be a woman once lived there. Basically is. There is no link. It's clearly a made-up link so that he can try and put a veneer of respectability over this scheme which is basically a veil for him to be able to do a vanity project there is no connection of the pankhursts with regent's college a private college it does stand on the grounds of what previously was bedford college but 
Regent's College is not connected to Bedford College, literally apart from the fact, I mean, it's not even, yeah, it is. A woman once lived here, a woman once walked here, basically, <laughs> because it, it's, Regent's College hasn't inherited Bedford College. Bedford College joined up with Holloway, and, and so it's, it's sort of moved location. So Regent's College has nothing to do with the history of women's education. Actually, Emmeline Pankhurst really wasn't particularly involved in fighting for women's education. She was very focused on the vote and then politics and had nothing to do with Regent's College. You know, she was from Manchester, apart from anything else. So it's just completely madcap. Now, obviously, we're encouraging people to object to this. You're encouraging people and we would certainly encourage people. Is that likely to be enough? I have to say I don't know. I don't have enough insight exactly into how planning decisions get made I would hope that it would be enough I would hope that all you would have to say to the planners would be for a start this is the location that suffragettes chose this is a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst created by her fellow suffragettes positioned by her fellow suffragettes in 1955 it was moved slightly staying within Victoria Tower Gardens to a more prominent location and even that the suffragettes who were still alive at the time weren't too sure about at first because they felt it was moving her further away from the House of Commons by 50 yards. So the idea that they'd be happy with it being moved all the way across London is, is just sort of laughable. It's sort of trampling all over the wishes of the women who fought so hard for us to have the vote. So you would hope that that would be all you have to say to the planners. I don't know if it will be enough. It should be enough. But if it isn't, I don't know. I guess we'll have to just go and lie down in front of the statue. (laughs) (laughs) I just, that statue can't be moved. I genuinely feel that it's a desecration. It's an act of vandalism. I feel so strongly about it. It's, I'm, I'm very angry that this is even being considered. I agree. How did this come to your attention? Because this is the sort of thing that can usually just slip through planning. Yeah, well, exactly. I'm so delighted it did come to my attention. Basically, a blog written by a historian called Elizabeth Crawford, who's a suffragette historian. And I'm not entirely sure how she came across it. But thankfully, she did. And she wrote a blog about what the plans were. And I read the blog, was shocked and horrified and decided to, to sort of try and do something about it. So I first became aware of Sunil Thorne himself when uh, I was campaigning for a statue of Millicent Fawcett, which is now in, in Parliament Square. And I knew he wanted to do a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst. And I didn't want to do a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst for the exact reason that there's already a really great statue of her in Victoria Tower Gardens. So I knew that his statue had gone to the planning process at the same time as mine. And, you know, I think unsurprisingly, our plan got approved and his didn't. So I I knew that he had wanted to do this, but I didn't know that he was, you know, going to go and try again and have this sort of obscene uh, plan of moving this incredibly historically and historically situated statue in favour of of this new one. I mean, it, it just... I, I, I mean, I know you questioned me on Vanity Project, and obviously I can't look into the guy's soul, yeah. but, <laughs> I mean, you tell me, what what other reason is there to replace a historic statue with one that you are making yourself? Like, he's got no connection to the Pankhursts. There's no historical significance. There's no ancestral significance. He's not been involved in the fight for suffrage or for women's rights in any way. It, it's just... You know, something with absolutely no basis in anything other than the guy wants to put a statue up. He wants to buy a bit of public land and make his mark on history. I just I find it 
just baffling. It, it does. It does feel a bit like the idea that Trump went into the White House and ripped out historic things and put in gold-plated things. It, it just does feel like putting your mark on something that doesn't really need your mark on it at all. How yeah, do people I mean, go about that... objecting to this? So basically, you go onto the Westminster planning application website and you have to register but it just takes a second you just have to fill in your name and email address you don't have to be a resident so when you submit your objection and you do need to write an objection you know you need to write why you object to it and my recommendation would be that you focus on the fact that this is where the suffragettes chose to have that statue because I think that that's really important and and I think it's also really important to to note that they particularly objected when it was already moved once before because it was going to be moved 50 yards further away from the House of Commons, you know. And also, actually, they received assurances at the time from the Minister for Works that it wouldn't be moved again. So, you know, I think those are, it's really important to object on the basis of the location. And you, you go onto the website and you register and then you just write why you object. And there are actually three planning applications he's made. One is to remove the statue from Victoria Tower Gardens. One is to relocate it to Regent's College and one is for the new statue. I have objected to all three. I objected to the removal on the basis that I've already said. I objected to the relocation to Regent's College on pretty much the same basis. And then I objected to the creation of a new statue, which people may not particularly want to object to. Um, I objected to it on the basis that we have so few statues of women. Why waste this amazing opportunity by making a statue of someone who already has a statue, already has a great statue, and in fact already has a statue, if it's not already up, is about to go up in Manchester. So for all those reasons, I object to the new statue, but I'm a bit sort of doolally about statues, so I appreciate (laughs) other people may not. No, you not feel the same way. Well, thank goodness you um, are, else we wouldn't have one of Millicent Fawcett. <laughs> thank you so much for your Sorry, time, Caroline. Hopefully, no worries. Hopefully, we can um, get some comments coming in your direction. So, as we discussed, all comments objecting to this would be welcomed. There are a number of ways you can find where to comment reasonably easily. We will put a link in our mail out. We will also tweet a link. There is a link on Caroline Criado. Perez's Twitter account. You will find her at at C Criado Perez. You can find a link on our Twitter account. We will tweet one out, which is at Standard Issue UK. You will find one on my Twitter account where I am at that Dunleavy. We'll also put something on our Facebook page. If none of those ways are ways in which you communicate with us, you can also visit the original blog that Caroline was talking about, which has all the links in it. And you can find that at womanandhersphere.com that's womanandhersphere.com where you will find a piece explaining a bit more and also providing links to where you comment get objecting people hello i am joined on the phone by musician carla j easton who is currently walking home from work so if you can hear a little bit of background noise, that's what that is. Hey, Carla. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just about to pass an accordion. <laughs> Sorry. That is excellent timing. Who doesn't love a bit of accordion on their way home? Yeah. 
<laughs> I've been playing Lights in the Dark on repeat because I love me a bit of post-punk synth. But for those who might be new to your music, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name's Carly J. Easton. I'm in the band Team Canteen. I'm the lead singer and songwriter. And outside of that, I do my own solo stuff. So I'm about to release what will be my second solo album. My first solo album I released under an alias, which was X, just to confuse everyone. So yeah, I've been a musician now for about 14 years. And you just mentioned that your debut album, Homemade Lemonade, wasn't released under your name. Why did you decide to use a pseudonym? Well, it, it was coming out the same year as the Teen Canteen album, and we'd worked so hard via Pledge Music campaign that I kind of thought if I stuck it out under an alias and well the idea was that people wouldn't it wouldn't really matter if they knew it was me or not and it wouldn't detract from Team Canteen releasing our album the same year. Fair enough. And you mentioned that there's a new album in the offing and you had quite the time making that one, didn't you? Yeah, it was uh, we pretty much took out a year of my life. So last March I was lucky enough to go and do the singer-songwriter residency at the Band Centre for Arts and Creativity in Canada. Amazing. And whilst I was there, I got to meet and work with Howard Billerman on two tracks. So he produced Arcade Fire's debut album. And then when I got back to Scotland, they invited me to come over and do a full-length album with him that year. So I spent uh, all of last year just writing and demoing and then went over and spent a month in Montreal recording the album with some Canadian musicians that I'd met on the residency. Is that the kind of thing that you ever dreamed might happen? No, I'm from a tiny town uh, called Curlick and <laughs> it's the kind of thing that I think if you could rewind and tell like, me maybe 10 years ago that I'd be doing this, I would have laughed. You've released two singles this year, which are Lights in the Dark and Wanting What I Can't Have, and they're off this album. What is the album called? Can you tell us yet? Yeah, the album's called Impossible Stuff, um, and it should be out the first week of October on Olive Grove Records. Amazing. And you create a massive sound and seem to take a real DIY pick-and-mix approach to music where pretty much anything goes and anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, well, my my favourite part of the whole process is recording. I kind of, I go into the studio with the bare bones of an idea and then you have this big audio playground just at your fingertips. So when I was in Canada, we had access to like real timpani and tubular bells and brass players and string players and sitar players. So I just kind of, I make the record without kind of worrying about how to do it live. Um, just because <laughs> oh, yeah. I like building, yeah, just kind of like building up these arrangements and these sounds. And I think it comes from like growing up listening to a lot of Phil Spector records where it's like so much kind of orchestration and arrangement and just kind of loving that big kind of live pop sound as well. I was going to ask you what kind of music were you brought up on? Just a bit of everything. My eldest brother's 10 years older than me, so... From a very young age, I was exposed to, to what he was listening to as a teenager. It ranged from everything, whatever he got into. And as I was discovering music for myself, you could go into him and he had this huge record and CD collection and say, we have this album and he, he probably would have it. So I was always kind of quite lucky in that respect that there was always music around on in the house growing up. And when you're having a bit of downtime, what is it that you reach for to put on your CD player? 
that might be really old school. Sorry, iPod? Well, it's, I've got a big record collection, so it just depends what kind of mood I'm in. One of my favourite singer-songwriters is Lauren Nero. I really love her album, Smile. So music, particularly when it comes to bands, still seems predominantly blokey, but you've been doing some championing of women who broke that mould in Scotland. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, so it's me and my friend Blair Young, about two years ago, had this idea to do a documentary about women making music in Scotland. And it's because he was making a video for my band, Teen Canteen, and and We're All Girls, and we got into talking about the representation of of women in music videos, whether they be in, in vocal groups or bands. And, I mean, we're both big music fans, so I started sort of saying, oh, have you heard of this band from Scotland? Have you heard of this? And he said no. And he'd been looking for a documentary idea to kind of sink his teeth into because he's known for uh, making a lot of music videos, I guess. So it just kind of went on from there. And it's just my obsessive nature, I guess. I started looking into other bands uh, that had been around just because, I guess, when Team Canteen started, one of our... I don't want to say selling points, but it'd be like we'd constantly be referred to as an all-girl band. Uh-huh. And you just kind of want to think, well, surely we're not the first to do that. And by no means were we. And we weren't the only ones at the time when we started out. But I guess you can kind of look at the global stage and see what's going on. And then to me, it interests me to see what was going on kind of locally and just wanted to know what my heritage was in the sense of being a musician making music today and what had been before me. So it kind of just started off from that and then we got in touch with a lot of these bands that have been active it's from the 60s onwards we're kind of looking at and there's a wealth of great bands, great records, John Peel sessions done, tours done. A lot of it was quite hard to find despite us now living in this kind of internet age where everything's online, you can access the records, you can access the videos so a big part of it is to try and make it more available to people. What were your favourite discoveries? So, so in love with the Edinburgh band Trinset. Um, it was just such a joy to speak to Rachel and Gay and hear all their stories and then when they managed to get uh, their Peel sessions back and, and hear them and, and send them through. I mean, the record still sounds so fresh and exciting and it was amazing to hear them and hear them sing harmonies together and hear these songs that up to that point had just been talked about or had just heard about these Peel sessions. So I ended up sending them on to a few friends and they were like, can I send them on to some friends? And so that, that's been really great. That's cool. And it's ongoing. The documentary, which is as yet untitled, is still in the pipeline. You're still working on it. How have you found the process? Is it really different to making an album? I would say it's been in development. I mean, we're currently doing this completely unfunded and in in spare time from our other individual projects. The thing is that it's been hard as the stories are so incredible and you don't want to cut it short. Uh And then more people keep hearing about it. And then so you were like, oh, I want to include your story too. So it's just kind of having to come to this kind of cut-off point in terms of, like, which decade we're looking at. So we started in the the 1960s with a girl group from Edinburgh called the McKinleys that had that classic kind of girl group genre sound. And then we're taking it up to probably 2000 and using the millennium as a cut-off point because by that point the internet meant new bands starting out could maybe put their music out there and get in and maybe get a bit more reach. And it's going to be about 12 hours long, right? So you can cover everyone? Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
The reason that we're chatting now during the Edinburgh Fringe is that people can see exclusive excerpts from the documentary at the Since Yesterday event at the Edinburgh International Festival on August the 24th. Are you going to be there? Yeah, so the the night is, uh, it's called uh, Since Yesterday, uh, the Unsung Pioneers of Pop, I think is the full title. And uh, me and Blair were approached by EIF maybe last year to kind of see about doing something and we kind of like... Soon showed about whether to do it and whether we were ready to do it and whether the people we chatted to would want to be involved and then decided, right, okay, let's go for it. Um, so the night, it's sort of celebrating old music and new music. So there'll be sets, like full band sets of original material from the Van Tees, Sacred Pause and Bossy Love. And then, I don't want to say like the main band, but in terms of the older music, I've put together a house band of which I'll be in the I'll be playing in it as the synth player. Amazing! And we've learned we've learned a kind of greatest hits of non-hits <laughs> of all these songs that have kind of come through via the documentary research, and then we'll be joined on stage with the original singers from the band where possible and guest singers where not possible. That sounds amazing. Are you looking forward to it? I'm so nervous, but I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> Does it feel like there's a lot out there? Does it feel like it's shifted? It feels like there's a lot, but it's so disappointing to me to look at, um, you know, there's there's a couple of festivals going on this summer and there's, there's not one woman on the bill. Yep. And I just think that's not representative of what's going on today. It's not a new thing that women have been making music. We've always been making music. And that's why I'm really pleased that the, the PRS Foundation has brought up the Key Change initiative to try and get more festivals to, to sign up to say we'll have a 50-50 gender bill by like 2020. But it's disappointing to see some festivals haven't signed up to it. And I think there's no sort of like solution to this. I mean, myself as a musician, I would never want to get booked for something just because of my gender. I'd like to get booked for something because the promoter believes in, in the music that I'm making. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if you start it off at a grassroots roots level and then you work with a band and bring them up to the, to the maybe are a main stage thing. But yeah, I'd say there, there's still a massive imbalance. The more we do the documentary, thinking about, you know, it's still pretty standard for the, a band to mean like four white guys. Yeah. I don't know why that is. And then I guess if we look at the history of kind of pop music and rock and roll, it's still relatively young and it's maybe, what, 70, 80 years, but... It still doesn't seem to be changing. Like, I want to know where the female equivalent is of, like, U2, for example, that can come out and do worldwide tours, selling out stadiums, and why have we not had that? And I think at some point we need to address and say, like, where is this issue happening? Why are women not making it onto the next level? Yeah, I think when you chat to people about music and the diversity of music, a lot of the stuff that comes up is like, oh, there are loads of women who are doing amazing. Look at Beyonce, look at Katy Perry, but... When you look at bands, that's where it falls apart. Yeah, totally, 100%. And there's been great bands. There's been like huge bands like Heart and the Bangles and the Go-Go's and stuff. But you look at stuff like the Rolling Stones, that just never seem to retire. And I want, I want <laughs> to know where the female equivalent is. And, you know, it's, again, another part for making the documentary and doing a night like this is in Teen Canteen, the drummer's my best friend and we've known each other since we were 11. But it wasn't until we were in our late 20s that we actually decided, let's make music together. And you're like, if we'd seen something that said you can do this at a young age, maybe we could have done it earlier, you know? Yeah, yeah. it is a bit of that. If you can see it, you can be it. And maybe 
girls aren't encouraged to pick up a guitar in the same way that boys are? I think there's definitely a link between audience and performer on stage. And I do think that if you have women on stage, you will have women in the audience. And I remember the first time I saw women on stage was when I saw the Polyphonics 3 when I was 16. And it's like, you know, 25 of them, male and female. And yeah. it was even this big pop sound. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I can do that, you know. So apart from a documentary and an album, what else have you got coming up? I don't know, maybe hopefully a break. <laughs> oh, well, no, it says here you've got a tour coming up in October. Yeah, no, so I've got a wee tour in October and then a couple of festival dates are sort of coming in now, which is exciting. And then we'll hopefully finish the documentary uh, so it's ready for next year. And then I've actually, I've already recorded half of what will be my third album. Wow. So I'd quite like some writing time to kind of finish that but yeah maybe a wee holiday would be nice <laughs> awesome where can people find out more about you Carla just my website carlajenniferheaston.com and then there's links to all my social media there brilliant thank you so much for talking to us and all the best with everything that you've got going on thank you Cheers. thanks for talking to me too I'm here in Summerhall with Ali Saunders, theatre maker and co-creator of a piece of theatre I've just seen called Our Country, which I enjoyed very much. I'm so glad. That said, I'm not entirely sure how I would go about describing it, so it's probably best to give it to you if you could give a description of what Our Country is. Our Country is a piece of devised theatre that I made with Becca Wolf and with my company, Wilderness, who largely makes site-based immersive performance, but this is a proscenium touring show where um, we build the set around the audience at a certain moment in the piece. So it has, I hope, that quality of participatory, semi-interactive, immersive performance in a proscenium setting. And it's a story about a lot of things. It's a story about me and my brother. It's a story about America and sort of what we are experiencing now as a bit of a primal time in America. It draws a parallel between sibling relationships in childhood uh, and our sibling as the person who knows us at our most primal violent self and looks at how we are experiencing a violent primal time in America at the moment. It also looks at the Wild West uh, and other origin stories. So we use the story of Antigone and Greek tragedy to look at the beginning of democracy. We use the Wild West and the romanticism around uh, Western movies to look at origin stories in America. And then we look at sibling relationships as a way into childhood and the systems that we create in childhood. It's really interesting, I have to say. I wrote down a list of things that I could talk to you about in the time we have. Great. Based on that entirely which is marijuana, gun control, younger brothers, westerns, and how people grow up so different when they come from the same family. They're about my five favourite things to talk about, if I'm going to be honest. Brilliant. But it is a very personal story for you, isn't it? Mm. A lot of it's based on a phone call between your brother and yourself, but then you have someone playing your brother on Mm. stage. So perhaps you could tell people what the situation is about your brother. He has a marijuana farm in Northern California. Uh, he is a great interlocutor, as you <laughs> experience. Yeah. Um, but he's also on felony probation, so he can't leave uh, he reminds, the state. He reminds <laughs> me a lot of a lot of people I know, mm. I have to say. Mm. Um, I have a younger brother. He's not like that. But, but your relationship with him, I think you, you make a really interesting point in it. It's that your mother told you you have to take care of him no matter what. And that's something that's very much 
I've driven into me. My brother's nine years younger than me, so there's mm. a slightly bigger gap in between you and your brother. But I was told that constantly as a child. And yet there gets to a point where you have to let that go in the same way that parents have to let that go. But mm. it is quite hard with siblings. Mm. Mm. So how do you feel with your brother? How has that separation, or have you achieved that, do you think, at all with your brother? Definitely in the process of making the show, our relationship has changed, and I think... I accept him more as an adult for who he is, you know, as opposed to this kind of like transposition of seeing him as a a child always and that I'm responsible for him. But another thing that became really clear in the making of the work, which we talk about at the end of the show, is this feeling of having a sibling as the person that is theoretically going to show up for you when things happen, you know, like when your parents are ill or they die or when they die and this, you know, or just when life happens, like a sibling is supposed to be that person. So when you have a sibling that because of a dangerous lifestyle, you know, easily could be incarcerated or predeceased me, that it's more than just fix your life because I'm here to tell you what to do because I'm older. It's more, it's like, I need you to be around, you know, what will happen to me if you are not there? You have to fix your life because I need you to show up. Yeah. I mean, on a much smaller scale, my brother refuses point blank to learn to drive because society says that men have to be able to drive. And I said, how are we going to see each other when we're old people? Mm. If, they, if you can't drive and you can't get to me. Mm. The theme of the West is absolutely fascinating. I have to say, I love a Western. You were going to see, actually, was there a Ken Burns, the West quote in your, did yeah. I hear that? Yeah, we use, um, the guy is a historian called Richard White, yeah. and he says, which, you know, this is a very interesting quote for our piece, especially because it, does deal it doesn't explicitly deal but it does deal with whiteness in america and intersectionality this guy in the in ken burns documentary the west says um american stories are western stories american heroes are western heroes when we imagine the possibility of the future is always in the west even when we say something has been lost what's lost is always in the west it's in a section of our show where we talk about racism and you know, that quote also is not about all Americans. You know, the guy says like American heroes are Western heroes. Americans imagine themselves as cowboys on the frontier. And it's like some Americans, white Americans, you know, is really the reality of that. And really, and also like Western, I don't know, I actually don't really know what people feel on the East coast or in the South about like the history their historical heroes. There's another. We've we've actually been rewatching that documentary during uh, it, during the festival. It's great as a team building exercise. <laughs> and we uh, recently there was a, a section where another expert says, you know, we look back on the West with a mixture of pride and shame. So we look, we see our heroes, and we aspire to them, and we also are sort of mortified at their behavior, which I think is so similar to how we look at childhood, how we look at who we were as children, how we want to separate from who we were as children, how the sibling represents like a specter of who we were. You know, we could forget our violent past. If we didn't have a sibling, we want to go around and be like, I'm this sophisticated grown-up person. And then we have a sibling and the sibling is like, you threw me down the stairs for a bag of jelly beans. Like that was you, you know? 
And I think that's true in America now as well. I think a lot of the things that we don't face about ourselves as Americans are brought up by these specters of the past. Yeah. yeah. Because, because I mean, it's it's a story of great sort of triumph and achievement, isn't it? But it's there's a there's a human cost to mm. it. I think the only thing you can say about now is perhaps the the social media or things like that. At least the human cost is being talked about. Because it's interesting. There's a point at which you say, "What's the worst that could happen?" And that does seem to be a kind a question for America in general at the moment. And mm. it's a bit. I don't expect you to have an answer, but what do you think is the worst going to happen? Where do you think we're going? Or where do you think America is going at the moment? I think it might be the end, frankly. Like, I think this might be the sort of fall of the Western um, empire of America as a, as a world power. And I think that will be hard for, for many of us and maybe hard for the world. We'll see. We'll see what happens. It's a, it's a very, like, you know, the sort of destruction and exhaustion of power is a very creative moment. That's what that monologue is, is about, you know? And that monologue draws from Ennui's Antigone and also from We Were Eight Years in Power by Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, who both talk about... So this is a version of Antigone... Um, kind of existential version of Antigone that was written, I believe, in the 1940s, early 50s, maybe. And there's a monologue where the, the chorus narrator says, tragedy is restful. In tragedy, everything is laid out before you. You don't have to try. You don't have to hope. You can just do what you're supposed to do. And because of that, it's it's um, argument is elevated, which I think is something that's really interesting for our piece and for my relationship with my brother where we argue a lot as a way of connecting basically so there's that piece in the monologue about you know you could relax if it's a tragedy you know how everything's going to play out and it's really echoed in this recent publication by Ta-Nehisi Coast where he says um tragedy the story is of America is a tragedy and we can use that to focus you know maybe it's not a western yeah (laughs) basically now, talking of Antigone, you, you, another question you pose is, was it Antigone's job to sort out that mess mm. in the first place? Mm. Which revisits that idea that women are kind of expected just to subjugate their needs to the needs of the, the, the men around them. Which mm. is a, that's a question facing America at the moment as well, isn't it? The place of women. Mm. How positive do you feel about that? I think it's interesting also to echo something you were saying before about... Um, sibling brothers and sisters but there's a beautiful essay by Rebecca Solnit where she talks about how I would have made a great son my mother is so disappointed in me as a daughter because I don't look after things and I don't come to visit and I don't sort things out but she's so proud of my brothers who are just living their own lives and being ambitious and she would have been so proud of me if I were a son I think my parents would both consider themselves very feminist people but we're all subject to these social kind of traditions I guess yeah and I also think it comes from outside the family too you know this for sure like from society and I think I hope there's a trend towards more awareness of of what it takes to disrupt gender roles in America at the moment but I think it's a it's a struggle you know I mean it's like what we say at the end of the show it's like there's a moment of extreme juxtaposition where there's one version of me saying I have a profound emotional need for connection 
to this other person and I fear for their safety and I don't want to be alone, basically. And on the other hand, I'm saying, can't you just imagine if she just left the body there and she left, you know, and she just was Gregory Peck, basically. And I think that is the struggle. You know, we want personal freedom and we deeply need connection to others. And that's kind of how the piece ends, you know. What's next for you, Annie? Um, We're going to tour this show. So we're with Aurora Nova, who are a great touring organization presenting here at the Fringe. Also Boat Rocker, uh, which is an American touring organization. We're going to tour with them. So you're touring Um, in the UK? We're touring worldwide in 2019, 2020. Um, So we're just firming up all of those presentations now. But yeah, we're hoping to tour the UK, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and the US. So that's really exciting, especially for me, because I make largely site-specific work um, in disused buildings that are going to be demolished. So this is one of the only things I've made that's a really tourable piece of work for traditional theater spaces, yeah. uh, which is why we wanted to bring it to Summer Hall and, and showcase it here as a, as a piece of touring work. I have another project called Up in Arms, which is a two-person experience. Um, it's for two women at a time, a white woman and a black woman who are friends. And we take their photograph and talk to them about intersectionality um, and racism and feminism and, and female friendship. Um, so that's a live art and social practice project that's coming up this year and next year as well. And yeah, a few other few other projects in the pipeline. How do people find out more? They can find out more at our website, which is thisisthewilderness.com. Um, so that's the website for my company. They can also write to us at hello at thisisthewilderness.com. And then we're on all sorts of so social that, media. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hi, Hannah here again. Just quickly to tell you that if you enjoyed that interview with Annie, there will be more of it as this week's Sunday Chops. If you really enjoyed it and you're near Edinburgh, you might want to go and see our country. It's at Summerhall until the 26th of August. It's an hour long and it starts at 5.15. Also, if listening to Annie made you want to read We Were Eight Years in Power by ta Coates, it made me want to read it and it was already a great decision. Um, that is available to buy now in hardback or it is out in paperback on the 1st of November. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we sprint, hurdle and throw ourselves across 14 different events in the name of women's sports and serious amateurism. Is that a word? I don't know. Anyway, in a minute, you'll be hearing from Lauren Hendry, a woman who's written an Edinburgh show about how and why she decided to compete in the Tetra Decathlon World Championships. But before that, the US Open kicks off next week when we'll be on gigcast duty. To be honest, you could pretty much listen to what Ellie Oldroyd had to say about Wimbledon back in July, and a lot of it would still be relevant. But first up, let's talk about Joe Conta. Now, she has had a pretty rubbish year, to be fair, and a dismal campaign at Wimbledon going out in the first round. But things have been looking up a little bit since then. She's into the round of 16 at the Connecticut Open, playing Carla Suarez-Navarro later today, which is Tuesday. Uh, So tomorrow, Wednesday, again, time travel, it's an issue, you know the drill. So she's been doing okay. She also made it to the round of 16 at the Canadian Open and the quarterfinals at San Jose. Her best ever US Open result is making it to the fourth round. Can she improve on that this year? I 
don't know. I'm not sure I'd be willing to take a punt on it if I'm perfectly honest, but, you know. Now, a main contender as ever, Simona Halep, winner of this year's French Open. She's pulled out of her final warm-up tournament thanks to an Achilles injury, so she might not be at her best, but, you know, we'll wait and see. Her best result in the tournament is making the semi-finals. That's a few years ago, but she has come a long way since 2015, so she's always one to watch as you know so long as she is fit and well of course we've got to talk about serena oh serena it's so close to your record the record not just your record your record is pretty strong but the record of margaret court 24 grand slams serena's on 23 we'll want her to do it but um yeah she lost out on the wimbledon title this year to angelique kerber Obviously, she's also a contender here, and she did win the tournament in 2016. But Serena, she has only played two tournaments since Wimbledon and was given quite a humbling by Conta, actually, at San Jose. And she also went out in the second round in Cincinnati. But again, you just, you don't know. She's won this tournament six times, and with the home crowd behind her, as ever, she's in with a good shot. And you can watch all of this live, should you so wish to, on Amazon Prime. That's right, guys. The robots are coming. Alexa, can you ask how much Amazon Prime costs per month, please? Anyway, that's enough of me wanging on. Over to Lauren. Hello. I am here with Lauren Hendry, theatre maker and writer slash star of cracking Edinburgh show Tetra Decathlon. Lauren, hello. Hello. Thanks so much for coming. You're very welcome. Um, So Lauren, your show, Touch of Decathlon, is about a crazy physical challenge that you undertook a couple of years ago to compete in the Touch of Decathlon World Championships. I would like to know, A, what the frick is a Touch of Decathlon and why? A Touch of Decathlon is an ultra multi-event, so it's really similar to a heptathlon which is all track and field events, but instead of seven events, there's 14. So they are 100 metres, 200 metres, 400, 800, 1500 and 3000 metres. 100 metre hurdles, 200 metre hurdles, 400 metre hurdles, long jump, high jump, shot putt, javelin and discus. How did this come about? What inspired this? I was kind of idly watching proper athletes on telly, which wasn't something I was at the time prone to doing. Mm -hmm. And it was when Jessica Ennis-Hill came back from having her time off to have her first baby and she won the heptathlon. And I started looking up multi-events and then I found out about the Tetra Decathlon and they had just had their world championships as well but there were only 12 women who had entered although I'd never run or jumped or hurdled or anything like that before I thought that I, I might like to give it a bash so that I could be 13th in the world. How did you prepare yourself for this challenge? I started off by seeing if I could run. <laughs> I just uh, went out and saw if I could manage a 5k. So I ran as slowly as I possibly could without walking just to see if I could just keep going long enough. So then after that, I was like, tick, the legs kind of work. So I joined an athletics club and I told them I was going to compete in the Tetra Decathlon World Championships. And no one knows what that is. Even in athletics, it's so obscure Mm. that none of the coaches or the other athletes knew what that might involve. And because I'd never done anything before, they 
thought it was a complete fantasy. But then I just kept showing up and kept trying some different different events until I'd, I tried them all. And then, yeah, entered myself soon afterwards into the European Championships. Tell us a little bit about the European Championships and what happened there. It was a bit of a disaster. I definitely didn't win and I did have to walk some of it. It was it was a bit painful. I spent quite a lot of the the two day competition in uh, in a pit of despair, being fed a banana by my long suffering boyfriend, <laughs> and being like doused with water and and looked after like a baby. And then uh, yeah, I barely made it through to the end. When that happened, so that's a bit of a setback. And then what? About a year later, then you compete in the world championships and you go through this crazy training program um to get there how did you pick yourself up after the european championships it really helps being part of this really great team of amateur athletes who you know none of them are, are kind of aiming for the olympics or anything kind of you know any of the major championships but they're all just keeping going trying to become the best that they can be mm. and just kind of having the opportunity to train with them week in, week out, it was really inspiring. And, and also, you know, it's a bit of a social thing. So that really kept me ticking along, even when it was kind of grim times and training through the winter. Yeah, I definitely couldn't have done it without them. So you made it to the World Championships, and I've spoken to you about this previously, so I know you're not going to want to tell us how you got on. Fair enough. You're going to have to come and see the show if you want to find out. But you did make it there. Were you happy with how it went? I wasn't really expecting to win after 18 months of training. So I guess it might be a kind of different ambition to, to how a lot of sporting stories that are in the kind of the public consciousness work out. Mm-hmm you know, this wasn't going to be like a, a cool, cool running story. Well, or cool running, I was going to say. Did they win? They didn't win, did they? Maybe it is a cool running story. I think it is a cool running story. <laughs> oh, all right, it's totally cool running. So I was really pleased with how the training went mm. between the, the first year with the European Championships and the, and the end of, of the whole process in the World Championships. So I know that you weren't particularly sporty before you started this what was it about sport that you didn't enjoy usually kind of it involving a lot of rain I guess I'd never really found an opportunity to feel like it was okay to be really rubbish at things in sport before I felt like you know playing football you either were good at it Mm. or like I'd never kind of really spent any time like just idly kicking a ball around so I didn't have those skills so I felt like it was some kind of magic that I just didn't possess. Yeah. But then with this, especially the club I went to, we were really open about bringing in people who'd never done it before. And they were like, great, you've got some arms you can throw. So yeah, they were a lot more open and, and uh, supportive in, in getting me up to, well, I was going to say competition standards. It depends what you define as competition standard. Sport, when you're younger, is kind of miserable for the reasons you just outlined. And I remember like doing PE, and if you're not good at it, the teacher's a bit like, well, not interested in you, mate. So it's quite hard, I think, if you're not great at it, to feel enthusiastic about it. What did you take from this experience? How did it feel to do something and not be that good at it? I guess it made me rethink my competitive nature. So I'm really competitive, 
but then putting myself into an arena in which I'm absolutely useless at, at everything, it made me get a lot more used to, to kind of sitting in that place where I'm absolutely hopeless. But I guess I realized that no one really cares. People are, they are looking at the people who are at, on the top of the pile and seeing if they're getting better or how things are doing. But otherwise, no one is pointing and laughing, which felt to everyone who's rubbish at sport when you're a kid. So it was really refreshing to see that you can just kind of pick stuff up, give it a bash, be hopeless, doesn't really matter. And I guess I'd, I'd put myself in a situation where there was no pressure because I just wanted to come last. And that allowed me to just enjoy what I was doing. And then I stuck with it and got ever so slightly better. Do you feel like the experience of doing it of taking yourself out of your comfort zone not just in terms of sport it's had an impact on your confidence sort of in general terms yeah I think especially doing a pursuit which is generally solo you know you're kind of responsible for for getting yourself to the finish line on on the day of the event that's given me a lot more confidence in life and I'm just much kind of happier to to pick something up and and be rubbish at it and yeah so I've tried lots of different things since I've I've done the world championships I've picked up new sports and done stuff that I've never never done before I've never written a show before for instance so why did you decide to write this show what inspired you to do that my background is in in making shows it was quite a natural step for me but also the world of athletics is full of weird and wonderful characters and stories. I just felt like meeting a lot of the athletes that I was competing against, there were little nuggets that they would say that you, you kind of can't believe that they're true. Mm. And so a lot of those bits have just kind of gone directly in into the show. The coach that I worked with was hilarious and I've competed against some very kind of stern athletes who are just totally blunt and will just tell you that you are absolutely rubbish <laughs> as if the results didn't speak for themselves. I think my favorite one which didn't make it into the show is I competed against a woman once who was asking her which events she was doing in a competition and it transpired we were going to be in the same hurdles race and I said oh we'll be together in hurdles and she said no you'll be behind me. Stuff like that just blew my brain that, <laughs> that, that, it, that those are adults who are saying those things to other adults. <laughs> it seemed like a, a really rich world to, to draw from, uh, both with the characters and the narrative to make the show. Were the other athletes completely baffled? Presumably most of these people have been doing it for many, many years and you've come in uh, 18 months training... I'm going to have a bash at this. And you've, you've kind of done it, for want of better words, for lols. <laughs> <laughs> like, how did they respond to that? Yeah, I felt quite almost not embarrassed to say that I was doing it for lols. But, um... Well, a personal challenge, but like, but initially, like, the Oh, no, for lols. Yeah. It almost felt sometimes like I was almost making fun of them when they're like, I've spent two decades training to do the 200 metres, mm. and you just rock up and you think it's funny to like do the world championships yeah I definitely think it's funny to do the world championships but there were actually a lot more than I would have thought um you know people in their 30s and beyond who had just kind of rocked up and wanted to do something for fitness and had ended up doing athletics because maybe it was the closest thing to their house or it was on a night that they mm. were available like people were doing it for all kinds of reasons 
And another category that I'd never thought about before is the, the master's athletes. So those over 35, but they go all the way up to 105. And they're amazing. They're just, you know, still kind of really scrapping to the line when they're in their 80s. And you're like, yes! Would you say to someone who's maybe like thinking about having a go at not even necessarily sport, what would you say to them if someone said to you, oh, I want to have a go at this, but I'm a bit nervous about it? I guess you wouldn't regret doing it. You probably would regret not doing it. I'm so glad to have had this experience. I wouldn't change it for the world. And committing to something full on from the beginning, it's really cool to just kind of have that planned out and and not kind of shy away from it just go right that's my thing now I'm gonna spend the next two years doing this and go for it it's it's great fun and really satisfying to see how far you can push yourself tell us a little bit more about your show so the show follows the the journey of the training and the big competitions for the tetra decathlon so it's a lot of the the kind of ups and downs of of training especially through the winter training the times are pretty grim so it follows the story of that it's got a bit of a taste of the physicality of of athletics and what it's like to do that training and how that kind of develops as you go along Hopefully people will find it funny in places. And do you hope that people will be inspired by it? I very much hope so. Not so much, you know, I I don't wish everyone to leave thinking, I want to do a Tetra Decathlon. But if people came away and, I don't know, signed up for the cheese rolling championships or the wife carrying competitions, any of that kind of stuff, I'd be delighted to know. After you've done this, what's next for you? Have you got your eye on any other mad challenges we should watch out for? I'm hoping to get some recommendations from my audience members. So um, let me know if you've got any any good contests coming up. Lauren, where and when can people see your show? I'm on Summer Hall in the Edinburgh Fringe at 11.55 every day. And then I'll be touring Scotland next month as well. So we're going all over the place from Dumfries and Galloway up to Leith Arts Centre near John O'Groats. And where can we find you on the internet? Uh, all of the dates and the information are at tetradecathlon.com. Where can we tweet you? At tetradecathlon. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you do this week? This week I did 1988's Oliver and Company, which is one of the lesser remembered ones. I think we may be about to find out why. Disney's take on Oliver Twist. It's got a pretty diverse cast, including Robert Loggia and Bette Midler. I hadn't... Well, you know what? I think I had seen it before because it's feel... I felt like I'd seen it before. My my brother, we know this, he's younger, so I quite often had to look after him. I feel like I took him to the cinema to see this when I was, like, 14, he was four. You ain't never getting that money back, Dunley. But the, well, that said, I couldn't remember a single thing about it. So that's never a good sign when you're like, I've seen this, and yet there's not a single bit that I've gone, oh, yeah, to. So maybe I fell asleep during it. Maybe. Can I add to the cast list Joey Lawrence mm. of Blossom? Yeah. Yeah. He plays the titular Oliver. Yeah. The only cat in the film. Apart from 
his brothers and sisters. Yeah. Oh, God. Have you guys seen it before? Jen, you are the only one of us that's kind of of an age that this would have appealed to you when it came out. Mate, I'm not going to lie to you. I completely forgot we were doing this this week and uh, I haven't watched it and I don't believe I have ever watched it. It certainly doesn't ring any bells. Mick? I don't think I've seen it before, but I have watched it yesterday and, yeah, nothing, nothing, nothing... That's yeah, all, see, I'm a bit. Got, now, what I've got to say is, this is the first time I actually had to pay to watch this. That I didn't find a copy of it somewhere, and I actually had to pay good money to watch this. And I do feel like it could have had the good grace to be a lot fucking better than it was, <laughs> since it cost me three pounds forty nine to rent on iTunes. But anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, it seems pointless to ask you this, but did you like it, Hannah? Um, not really. No, I didn't dislike it though. It was just—I was really, just really, really ambivalent about it. Yeah, I feel like this is the, this is—we're at the arse end of this now, aren't we? I think we're at about fifteen to go, and they're the ones that I haven't really wanted to watch. And now I feel like it's going to be this week after week after week. A big, Still got finding a big, Nemo. Hold a on, a big to thing. That. You might uh. unearth a, a treasure, a hidden gem. Well, do you remember we thought that would happen with the Black Cauldron, and it didn't. Did we? Yeah. Well, I say we. I thought that. I think you got to the point of manic hopefulness by then. Yeah, I've got to say the opening song was amazing, and not amazing in a good way, but just amazing. In I actually, I actually did laugh out loud because you, we've, I've been. I seem to have been talking a lot recently about with friends and things about you know the 1980s and how everything currently is set in the 1980s you know Stranger Things Glow lots and lots of series set in the 80s Darks in the 80s and I don't like what it is that's being portrayed about the 80s necessarily but I can't always put my finger on what's wrong with it but what I can say is the opening five minutes of Oliver and Company is the most 80s thing you will ever come across in your life including a Huey Lewis and the News track playing in the background about New York City. And everything All right, so you're talking else. about the titles, not the sausage chase. I'm talking about the opening scenes, yeah, yeah when, when they're playing, because you have to pronounce New York City, City. In, it's the law. In the 1980s, that was the law. So the plot is, Oliver is an orphan cat left in a box in New York City. He meets... Dodger, who is inexplicably played by Billy Joel. Is it a dog? He is a dog. Of course he is. Some sort of terrier. Mm-hmm. Um, Some sort of terror way. What a scamp. <laughs> yeah. Played by Billy Joel, who I don't know if he's acted before, since, or even during, but um, it was a, a weird choice. Billy Joel, the piano man. Yeah. He, he ends up going to the barge of Fagin, where he meets some other characters played by all sorts of strange combination of people, including Cheech Marin and Roscoe Lee Brown. Fagin is a human, and it's interesting because they've made a change to Fagin. Fagin is not the bad guy oh. in this. He is a human who owes another human, who is called Sykes. Right. Ops. No Ollie Reed. No Ollie Reed, but played by Robert Loggia. Um, he owes him money, and so therefore he's sending his people out to steal 
in order to pay off this guy so it's not really his fault that he's sending his dogs to steal stuff because he's trying to pay off this guy. I think it's Disney's way of fluffing the issue that basically everybody in this is breaking the law. Hmm. Sykes is the real cunt though, isn't he? Like He is. I mean, Fagan wasn't very nice, but Sykes is really nasty, wasn't he? No, it? he's a nasty piece of work. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he also has a bull terrier, doesn't he, called Bullseye, who does look a bit like Dodge. Yeah. Firstly, I've just got to say, the animation in this is well shonky. It's it's so bad. There's bits where the dogs are chasing through the street and they're going past people, and the people are stationary, standing there in a stationary position on the street But corners. marching, like they're marching. The, the title sequence, I actually rewound it to watch again, and like it, they look a bit like Scooby-Doo characters, yeah. but they're kind of moving their arms and their feet, but in exactly the same place. Well, some of them, they're not even moving at all. Oh, okay, just sort of... They're, they're just there. Anyway, so then Oliver sort of becomes part of this gang, and then he gets separated from the gang, and he ends up being picked up by a little girl who's called Jenny, and he goes and lives with her for a bit, and her dog, Georgette, who is played by Bette Midler. She's an uptown girl, Hannah. Yeah, we get a Bette Midler song, we get a Billy Joel song, I think we can predict those things. Then the dogs decide to rescue Oliver, which I think is an attempt to try and actually stick sort of to the rough plot of Oliver Twist without actually it making any logical sense because they've moved the characters in different directions. But Oliver's having a nice time skipping through Central Park because that's what you do with your cat. Have you ever taken your cat to a park? Yeah, and almost immediately he jumps up on her bed and he sleeps in her bed with her. And my first thought was, fuck me, I wish one of my cats would decide where they were going to sleep on the bed as quickly as Oliver did. He didn't go around in circles. He didn't do that kneading bit and then go, oh, no, 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 I want to be in the bit that she was just in and nudge her out of it. Anyway, the gang get him back. Um, He's a bit disappointed. Jenny's a bit upset. Then they sort of have a plan. They hatch a plan that they're going to say that they kidnapped the cat and then Sykes gets involved. Jenny gets kidnapped. They, there's there's a really long chase scene through the subway. They do like to remind you that they're in New York constantly. Here's the Brooklyn Bridge. Here's this. Here's, here's the subway. Which bit here's, of New York would you say it was, Hannah? Uh, you mean New York said there? That's the one. Um, yeah, at one point they're in Times Square um, in 1988 and no pawn shops, which can't possibly be accurate. <laughs> but there you go. In the end, Oliver decides to stay with Jenny and I... We'll never get that £3.49 back. Is Jenny Nancy? No, Jenny's a little girl. There isn't a Nancy, really. There's a dog in the gang. There is. There's a lady dog in the gang. There's one lady dog in the gang. Yeah. Who all the other dogs kind of fancy, but she does her own thing. I think she's the Nancy character. Okay. Yeah. Is it sexist? Is it racist? Possibly. I just, I couldn't even be bothered with this. It was just a thing that lay limply in front of me on the screen. Oh, come on. Did you not vibrate a little bit when a chihuahua came on the screen? I was like, I actually went, is this where the racism starts? But he's played by Cheech Marin. He is played by Cheech Marin, but maybe that was all the work Cheech Marin could get. I don't know. He had a headband on. He was the most, also quite 80s, and a bit an ear. And also, I suppose, was... um, kind of the one that was sexually harassing um, Georgette for quite a lot yeah. of it, which she inexplicably responded to at the end. She just wanted to change him, though, huh? Yeah, That's she did. But obviously, as Donald Trump says, all Mexicans are terrible human beings. Oh, no way, they're not. That's all I've got to say, unless you've got anything to add, Mick. It was... It was... It was just there. It, mm. I mean, it was kind of... 
a waste of the Oliver Twist story. It seems to be the arse end. I think I probably should know this, but I don't care. Um, <laughs> it, it's like, it's 1988. Now, um, The Little Mermaid, which was the start of the Disney Golden Age revival. Don't look at me like that, Mickey. That, Jen was, perks up. that was like 1989 or 1990, I think. It was pretty early. So I yeah. think this is the last of the, the selection of films up to and including this with a period that made them go Jesus we need to do something else and then we need to see which bitches yeah we do and we need, we need the Lion King and yep. we need that stuff because yeah I think the 80s were a bleak bleak time for Disney bleak time Oliver Twist is a good story though it is I love Oliver Twist oh, no Harry Seacombe that was my first disappointment yeah what score are you going to give it I'm going to give it two two what two rotations of Charles Dickens in his grave oh what about the Billy Joel soundtrack? Does it not get bonus points for... Oh, no, forget it. Okay. And... Any Nana. montage? Uh, Sorry. Maybe. I no, there's a sausage chasing scene that I suppose it felt like it went on for about four days. Well, I mean, it didn't have Phil Collins, did it? So that's the first era. Oh, but anyway, good news. There's less and less for us to watch. Hey. It doesn't come across on a podcast a look of utter despair and deadness behind yeah, the eyes. Sorry, I said to Jen earlier, I thought, come on, Hannah, write some fucking jokes. And then I thought, doesn't deserve it. <laughs> doesn't deserve jokes. Hi, me again. I know I'm like some constant interrupter, but this is actually the last one. And this is just me to say, we're done. Thank you very much for listening. That said, we're not quite done. As I said earlier, if you want to hear more of that conversation with Annie Saunders, then you should watch out for our Sunday Chops, which is released on Sunday. Now, you can watch out for it. Or what you can do is you can press the subscribe button, in which case you will find it just waiting for you on your iPhone or however you listen to it. That's really helpful for us. It's really helpful for you. Great win-win. So subscribe. There's some other ways you can help us. And all of them are actually really good for you. Another way you can help us, and by help us, I mean, you can come and see us. You can buy a ticket to one of our shows. We have three coming up in September. I know, Jesus, three. I will never see my cats again, it seems. But I'm not moaning because we've got some great guests. First up, Standard Issue is at the London Podcast Festival, September the 15th. We have, so far, we have one great guest booked, Imriel Morgan. There will be more guests announced. After that, the next event is In Conversation on September the 18th as part of Chelton Comedy Festival, where you can see us talking to Sally Phillips and to Ellie Gibson and Helen Thorne, otherwise known as the Scummy Mummies. And finally in September, In Conversation in London, which is at, back at the Leicester Square Theatre. We haven't been there for a while, so it's nice to be back, where we will be joined by Nigella Lawson, Samira Ahmed and Jodie Pranger. Who doesn't want to see that? You can find details of all those gigs and some other gigs that we have coming up, including an event at Cambridge at Sarah's website, which is sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. Third way, and this is a new way you can help us at the minute, is you can become a patron. I know. The details of how you do that, you can find on our Twitter account. If you're not on Twitter, why don't you just go to www.patreon.com. I'm going to spell that. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash standard issue where you are able to appreciate us with actual readies, which will obviously be helpful. Thanks to everyone who has become a patron so far. Big round of applause for you. If you want to sign up to that, we would be most great. Now, 
onto our final thing, something that we can do for you. Next week is our GigCast. Um, it was an event that we held in June in Sale, and we had some great guests, Shirley Houston, Jenny McAlpine, and Sean Gibson, who told a story about falling down a hole that was so funny, I actually entirely lost my shit. Which I don't know how well that'll work for a podcast, but let that be an encouragement to actually see us in person. In the meanwhile, thanks very much for listening. Have a good week until we speak next time. Stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.